Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the book of Acts, chapter 5, where we are going to be considering together verses 27 through 42. Acts chapter 5, 27 through 42, and you can find that passage on either page 1074 in your pew Bibles or beginning on page 28 in your Acts journals. This morning we are going to be wrapping up our look together into this fifth chapter of Luke's, the Acts of the Apostles. And before we do, allow me to just briefly remind you of where we are in our look together at it. Last week, you will remember, we found the apostles, really, we found the fledgling Christian church for that matter, sort of standing on the very brink of a very real and tangible escalation of oppression that had been raised up against it. And I mentioned to you last week that what begins to become more and more clear here in this oppression is that this really is a clash between two kingdoms. The true kingdom of God and any variant of the countless counterfeit kingdoms of this world. And as this clash between these two kingdoms began to take shape, we started to see a few traits within each of those kingdoms begin when placed under some kind of pressure to become manifested within them. And they go a very long way towards helping us in determining the true from the false. That pressure or that heat that begins to rise is the direct result of Almighty God manifesting more and more of His power through the hands of these apostles. They are healing the sick. And they are casting out demons. And they are exercising the power of Almighty God to restore the brokenness that was all around them. Undoubtedly, it was a spectacle in Jerusalem, especially where it's taking place in the temple grounds on Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. And it's creating a situation that's beginning to raise the temperature or raise that pressure that's mounting between these two kingdoms. And as it does, we see these similar traits of each kingdom begin to sort of bubble up to the surface. We see that though they are similar... They're actually very, very different from one another. And they begin to expose the true from the false. For example, one of the traits that we can see very clearly in both kingdoms is they are both zealous. They have zeal. Zeal, you may remember, is defined as a great energy or enthusiasm in the pursuit of a cause or an objective. In the case of the apostles, they have shown great zeal for their mission. They are zealously pursuing the opportunity to be witnesses for the glory of Jesus Christ and His gospel. They are, in fact, living to that very purpose. They are living to get people to Jesus. Nothing is more important to them. 
Nothing can stand in the way of their pursuit of it. They have gladly given up anything, everything, for that end. They're not even concerned for their own safety when it comes to living for this end. They are zealous for the king and the building up of his kingdom. And that, of course, is not the case with the leaders of the temple or the Sanhedrin. All the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders, all the the power of God on display here has had a very different effect on them. Though they too are zealous. They are zealous really to see it all come to an end. Their zeal is driven by their anger and their jealousy of the apostles. They do not like that people are holding the apostles in higher esteem than they are these leaders in Israel. And they're angry about it. They're upset at what is taking place. And their zeal is not at all driving them towards joy or peace or fulfillment and purpose. No, it's driving them to a violent rage against the God who is. And this supposed Messiah, whom they have already clearly rejected, regardless of what God has placed in front of their face. Only one zeal leads us towards true worship and reverence and awe of the God who is. And it's clear which one. And I asked you last week, and I ask you again this morning, beloved, it's, time, it's one of those things where we can take stock of ourselves. What is it that we are zealous for? The second thing we saw sort of rise to the surface in the case of the apostles was genuine or authentic biblical faith. Faith that has an object. And that object is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. These men, the invisible church for that matter at this time, not only knew God through his revelation of himself, but they trusted him as well. They were in possession of God-given faith. And so knowing became wholeheartedly trusting. And the implications for that are huge. This was the source of their courage. These men trusted God. They knew that nothing could stand in the way of Almighty God bringing about His perfect will upon the earth as He does in heaven. They were full of faith in Jesus Christ. And it made them fearless in the face of opposition. The Sanhedrin, however, lived motivated not by faith, but really by its opposite, fear. And so they trusted no one. They could not take heart. They did not truly know God, and so they could not take Him at His word. They cannot trust Him. And so they live in fear, fear of man. Fear of the loss of their power. Fear of whatever it is that might be coming next. Fear of the unknown. Faith is not fear and fear is not faith. 
in the kingdom of God, faith drives us towards Jesus Christ and His gospel. In all of the counterfeit kingdoms of this world, fear drives people away from God and towards desperate acts of folly, all the while never coming close to finding the peace and the rest that they so desperately seek. We must ask ourselves the question, again, beloved, what are we afraid of? What do we fear? And finally, we looked at the different responses of the two kingdoms to the truth. For the apostles, that response could only be obedience. They were told upon their angelic deliverance, at least temporarily, from the uh, temple prison to go back to the temple grounds and to give to the people all the words of life. To preach the gospel which brings life amid so much death. To get the people to Jesus and to do the work that they had been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to do, to give testimony to King Jesus and the building of his kingdom. And they were eager to do it. They went early in the morning, Luke says. They took the words of this angel, this messenger of Almighty God, as God's word to them, and they obeyed it. It was their joy to obey it. The members of the Sanhedrin have a very different reaction to the truth. Confronted with yet another miracle in this escape of the apostles, unknown even to the guards, standing guard at the door of the prison. But they will not obey, even when seeing the hand of God. And so they do what they must. They readjust. Their lives become a series of chaotic readjustments every single time they are faced with the truth of Almighty God. And things go from bad to worse. Beloved, I want to say before we're too hard on them, we must recognize how common this is. How do we respond to the Word of God in the conviction that the Spirit of God brings through that Word? Whether it be from the pastor or from the elders or from a friend or a spouse or from your own heart as you read the Word of God, how do you respond to it? Faith responds in obedience, even when obedience hurts. It is and should be our joy to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction regardless of our circumstances. And so as we close out this fifth chapter, I think we'll begin to see that even more clearly in the text that is before us this morning. So if you've not already done so, please turn with me now to Acts chapter 5 and follow along as we pick up with verse 27 And read through 42. Hear now the word of our Lord. I'm actually going to read 26 just so we know where we're at. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, 
Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all of the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work of, is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that your spirit would fill us, that you would take away those things that distract us in our hearts and our minds, that we might give our full attention to the truth of your word and hearing that word through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be transformed by that word for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 26, we saw that after being told that the imprisoned apostles were somehow now once again teaching and, and preaching Christ in the temple to the people, the captain of the guard went down with the officers and he sort of quietly brought them back to the council to answer the charges that were being leveled against them. We're told the high priest is going to be the one to bring those charges, and he tells them the charges, and I think we really see three of them here in this text, all of them in verse 28. 
First, I think the apostles are being charged with rejecting the authority of the council. Second, I think we see here a charge that the apostles are creating schism or division in the Jewish community through teaching and spreading what amounts to heresy. And the third charge against them here is that they are now falsely accusing them, that is, these leaders of God's people, of being murderers and taking the life of Jesus Christ. So those are the charges. Rejecting their authority, creating schism through heresy, and blaming the murder of Jesus on the leaders of the temple, the leaders of God's people. All three of them there in verse 28. And Peter apparently is going to be the one answering for these, these charges for the apostles, or it's at least his name that Luke records for us first here. And before we dig into those answers, I would like to point out to you here at the outset that this is, is one of those times where if you are just reading this as strictly historical narrative, there's a very good chance that you might miss the bigger picture of what's going on here as the Apostle Peter answers these charges that have been leveled against himself and these other apostles. And of course, in making that much clear here as we begin to unpack this scene, I would still point out that even with that in mind, we are going to be just merely scratching the surface of this. I do hope that if nothing else, that you will at least have your interest peaked enough that you will go back and study this passage some more on your own time as you spend time meditating upon the Word of God. At least I pray that you will. So this first charge then regarding the apostles being caught red-handed, if you will, going directly contrary to this directive that was given to them by the Sanhedrin at their first arrest and publicly preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They were told upon their first release, do not preach and teach in this name anymore. And Peter, in answering this charge, does not deny it. Basically, he answers kind of indirectly here that they are, of course, guilty as charged. He does not try to justify what they've done with a theological treatise. He makes no excuse. He says, in effect, yes, we are doing that, and unfortunately, regardless of what you have to say about it, we are going to continue to preach and teach the name of Jesus Christ. Because we must. This is why we are here. This is our purpose. And that purpose, you understand, was not according to their individual likes or desires. It was the directive of Almighty God upon them. Jesus told them specifically that they were going to be his witnesses. And so they are. And look at what Peter says here. He hearkens back to what he had already said to them. Verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than man. And beloved, I want you to understand, this is not meant to be flippant here. Peter's not just sort of thumbing his nose at the authorities here in Jerusalem. He's not using the spiritual gift of sarcasm here. 
You're right. Some of you are looking at me funny. That's not a gift, though. I know some of you think it is. This is not sarcasm. Peter is making a highly theological point here. And beloved, we need to see it. He's looking at the very men who have been tasked with leading the people of God, not just in their knowledge of God and His Word, but even in that most sacred act of worship. And he's saying to them in in essence, you tell me, which is the path of wisdom? Following the directives of men or following the directives of Almighty God? Clearly, we must obey God. This is not just a rebellious act of ignoring the directive because they do not like being told what to do. So if you use passages like this one to approve of your own blatant civil disobedience sort of across the board, I want you to please make sure that you understand the one qualifier here. Does that ruler... Or do those laws go directly contrary to the directive of Almighty God and His Word? Peter is using that criteria here. And he says, in effect, yes, this one does. We must obey God, and so too must you. That's his answer to this charge. Guilty because we must obey the word of God over your word on the matter. Beloved, I want you to think this through this morning. Because we come up against this kind of thing all the time in this life, don't we? It's not a new concept. We read of another one just like it this morning from 2 Kings chapter 19. In the 14th year of the reign of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against Judah and her fortified cities, and the word of God says he took them, placed himself in charge. Then Hezekiah sent to the the king of the Assyrians, and he asked him, what's the price for you to turn away from us and just leave us be? Name your price. This is in 18. We didn't read that this morning. We read 19. But in 18, he asks him that. And Sennacherib tells Hezekiah that if he wants him to leave, he must pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah strips the silver and gold from the temple. He takes also from his own treasuries. We're told he even strips the gold from the doors of the temple in order to pay this tribute to this fierce warrior. And like most acts of cowardice, it wasn't enough. Sennacherib sends his hype men to the Israelites again, the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, all come with a great army against Jerusalem and her king. And the Rabshakeh, through really what amounts to major trash talk, insults the envoy that comes out to meet him, as well as those he can see sort of peeking out from behind the walls of Jerusalem. 
And he calls out to them with countless threats of what's coming if they fail to give the Assyrian king even more than he asked for. Long story short here, after a whole lot of torn clothing, sackcloth, and ashes, they finally cry out to God for deliverance. Safety certainly required them to bow the knee to the king that was holding the most power, the most apparent power in the moment. The one with the most swords, the biggest army, the most available means, the man with the most violent victories under his belt, the scariest of all the warriors. But they actually do that in going to the Lord Almighty over all. And he tells them through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah to not be afraid because I will take care of them. And look at what happened. I hope you heard the weight of it this morning. Look at verse 35 of chapter 19. And it came to pass on a certain night that an angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses. All of them, 185,000 corpses. This mighty, boisterous army wiped out in the span of a few hours during the night. And it raises the question, what fool follows the words of man when those words go contrary to the word of this God? This is but one of many such instances, beloved. Think along the lines of the friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace. Or even Daniel himself being thrown into a, a den of hungry lions. Why? For failing to face the obscene image of the king who told him he must pray to him. Deliverance for the ones who took God at his word and who unafraid walked into the clutches of danger expecting deliverance or the glory of God. And they were fine with either. They trusted God. We ought to obey God rather than man. Beloved, do you believe that this morning? Is it easier to blindly follow even what you know goes contrary to the word of God than to stand and say, death or deliverance? I trust my life in the hands of my gracious King. We must know Him and we must trust Him. And we need to see here that Peter and these apostles, this fledgling church, they do both. They know Him through His Word and they trust Him with their very lives. And so we ask, do we? Do we trust him? We need to get to the answer of the second charge leveled against them. And that is that they were creating schism through heresy. Verse 29, again, look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. In the eyes of the authority, this doctrine that they had filled Jerusalem with was that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. 
long-awaited Messiah. And once again here, Peter answers in the affirmative. Yes. Guilty as charged. And look at what Peter does. He uses the opportunity not to shy away from preaching the name of Jesus, but to do it and to address the gospel itself towards the very people who are enraged with him in the moment. Do you see that? Look at verses 30 and 31. Peter says, the God of our fathers. Think about that. Do you see what he's doing? It would be easy to miss. He says in effect, look guys, the God of our fathers, my father and your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who spoke with Moses on the mountain, the God that you think that you serve and that I do in fact serve and have communion with and have spoken with, the God of our fathers. Listen, leaders of Israel, this God is your God. It's inclusive. This is your God and my God. This God raised up Jesus Christ, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. He's going after that third charge here as well. Again, guilty as charged. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Our God, our Father, has raised up Jesus and he has seated him at his right hand to govern his kingdom and to save his people. Do you see it, beloved? This is the good news. Peter is using the opportunity on trial for preaching the gospel to preach the gospel. Even to these men, these self-declared enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in effect, look, you murdered him. You, you orchestrated his death on the cross, you were at, very, at the very least complicit in his murder. Though it was done by the hands of the Roman authorities, you orchestrated the whole thing. You murderers of Jesus. He has forgiveness for you. The wealth of his grace is that expansive. He did it all for broken sinners like all of us, like them, like you and I, like Peter. Jesus came and he died to give us life in union with him by faith. Faith that he so graciously gives. Beloved, does it make your soul sing this morning? Have you ever felt that maybe Maybe you've just done too much wrong to ever truly have the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That you have slipped and fell far too many times to ever be taken seriously by Almighty God. Just Guy. Guy is the only one nodding his head. Like, this is all of us, right? 
We've found ourselves seething in our sin and thinking there really can be no deliverance for us. Take heart this morning. Listen to the wonderful words of life this morning. As Peter addresses the very men who were guilty of orchestrating the death of the Son of God. And he says, look. His grace, his grace is big enough for you too. What was your sin that was just too big for the grace of God? I fear that too often our God is too small and his grace is far too limited and we are just too bad, too far gone for salvation in our own weak and fallen minds. We need to call that what it is. Idolatry. It's not the message of the word of God. The angel told these men, go and give the broken ones the words of life. And here they are, beloved. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father in the seat of all authority. He is our advocate. His spirit is here among us, twisting and turning and poking and prodding hard hearts of stone and making them into pliable hearts of flesh. What sin do you have that's too big for God? Nothing will stand in the way of God's grace. Is not at least that much very, very clear here? As Peter dishes out the gospel to these enemies of peace. Peter tells them, my mission has not changed. Verse 32, we are his witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Their mission has not changed. They and the Holy Spirit within them attest to the resurrection and the ascension of King Jesus to his throne where he will reign until he comes again and makes all things new. Peter, in effect, answers guilty to all three charges. And in answer to the charge that he had preached the gospel after he had been warned to not preach the gospel, he preached the gospel as his defense. Now these leaders have all that they need to drag this loud-mouthed insurrectionist and all of his ilk into the streets and kill them by stoning. Some of them are undoubtedly already beginning to warm up their arms, right? And get loose. Luke tells us that when they heard it, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. And then the power of Almighty God takes over. You know, reading the commentaries on this section of Scripture gave me both a headache and a heartache this week. Many of them sort of tripped all over themselves trying to explain away the hand of God here. How could Luke have possibly known what Gamaliel said in a closed session of the council? Are you kidding me? 
And clearly Gamaliel, he uses references in this speech that don't really fit the dating here. And on and on and on they go. Listen, this is the power of God at work. The gospel has been preached and souls are being stirred by the grace of God. And I cannot say definitively that Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees, was actually led to Christ here. I can't say that. But I will say... He most certainly was used of God for his purposes of salvation and deliverance here at the very least. The work of these men is not yet done. And so God stirs something up in Gamaliel. And he shows real wisdom in his words. He calls for the council to go into executive session. They dismiss the apostles outside while they discuss what it is that they've heard in answer to these charges. And Gamaliel stands up and he warns them all to be very, very careful with what they do next. And he gives them two examples of false teachers who had risen up, gained a following, and then were put down and proved to be not of God. And the point is simple. If these men are not of God, this movement will certainly die because God will not stand for it. However, he says, if if this is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Peter was always ready to preach Christ And that's what he did. He trusted his God to give him the words to speak in his own defense, just as God promised him that he would. And something stirred in Gamaliel. Something warned him here of the danger that he and his fellow leaders were facing. God was everywhere, all around these apostles. Miracle upon miracle upon miracle, healings and demon castings, broken sinners coming to to vibrant and healthy faith in Jesus Christ. It was all much too big to deny. And that still small voice sounded in the ears of Gamaliel and he, he obeyed that voice and he warned the others of the folly of ever trying to overthrow the work of Almighty God. The evidence was all around them, and it demanded a verdict, but they didn't give it one for now. They agreed with Gamaliel, another small miracle, and they had the apostles beaten and once again turned them loose, knowing that they would, of course, not stop preaching the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did the apostles do post-beating? They rejoiced. They rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of their king because they were his witnesses. They belonged to him. And they rejoiced in that wonderful fact. They were courageous under fire because they knew enough to trust God with their very lives. They saw their own savage beating as a wonderful blessing because the God they knew and the God who knew them, the God whom they worshipped, had himself counted them worthy to suffer for him. 
Beloved, this is biblical faith. This is what transformation through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. And understand, I'm not standing up here saying that if you do not suffer physical violence in Jesus' name, then that you have good reason to doubt the validity of your faith. Of course I'm not saying that. But I do want you to look at what is driving these men in their zeal, in their courage, and in their trust of the God who is. They know him through his word, and they trust him in everything. That's the recipe for growth by the grace of God. Indeed, why do the heathen nations rage? Why would anyone bother to stand in the way of this God? The only God. The God who so mercifully saves his sheep. Beloved, can you take your circumstance, your addiction, your lies, your hatred, your gossip, your slander, your foolishness, can you take it here? The answer is a thousand times yes. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, did not come and die to buy you half a salvation. That's blasphemy. He paid it all. Enough grace for all of us and then some. Even enough for the murderers of Jesus. Jesus died to save sinners. And if you're not sure whether or not you are one, please see me after the service. I'd be happy to prove to you that you are. Because I am. We all are, right? We all desperately need Jesus. We need to know him and we need to trust him. And so does this world. And they need that more than they need any of the other fixes that we might think it needs. We've got a lot of those. This world needs Jesus. And he's called on you and me to be his witnesses. So we need to know him. His word and his spirit are enough for us. And he freely gives us both. And so knowing him, we can trust him. Will you trust him this morning? Will you come to him and lay your burden down for good? I warned the elders I might freewheel here a little bit. I, yesterday I finished this sermon and it was about 5 o'clock in the evening. And I was driving home and I was on 14 here. I just turned out of the church and went down 14. And I couldn't stop singing the words to tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And I fear that sometimes we, we sing these great hymns of the church. And we don't think about them. But that hymn was written because of this truth. And so I want to close with just reading those words. It's my fault. If I finished my sermon on Tuesday, it probably would have been in the worship this morning. That's not, that's not the way it went for me. 699. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing and cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, trust just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I'm so glad I learned to trust in thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me and wilt be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Will we trust the Christ that brings us together to worship every single Lord's Day? Beloved, I pray that we will. Let's pray.